Good morning. It's time for us to read the word together. My name's Deborah and I'm on the staff here, so it'd be lovely to meet you after the service if you're so inclined. I'm always inclined. So let's uh, read the Bible together. The reading this morning is found on page 1019 of the Bibles that are in the chair in front of you. And it's Mark chapter 14. So page 1019, Mark chapter 14. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thank you, Deb. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those watching online. Welcome to those in the building uh, as well who are new or visiting with us today. My name is Nathan. Um, we're going to pray as we get stuck into God's Word together. Join with me. Heavenly Father, as the psalmist writes, how sweet are your words to our lips, Lord, sweeter than honeycomb in our mouths. And we just pray, Lord, that we might taste this sweetness as we feed on your word together now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is it worth, Dad? What's it worth? That's a question one of my sons has been asking me lately. Um, if you were here the last time I preached, I mentioned the fact that I really enjoy watching movies. don't know if you remember that. But uh, one of my other hobbies is playing and collecting board games. And I've got a, I've got a fair collection um, on my shelves at the moment, shelves and shelves and drawfuls of games. Uh, but of course, there's only so much space. So from time to time, I've got to go through a season of purging almost like choosing lands for the slaughter, you know, which game is going to be shunted onto Facebook Marketplace next. Sometimes it's hard to make that decision. But one of my sons enjoys doing it with me. He's kind of our, our wheeler and dealer in the family. Uh, so he asks me, you know, what is this one worth? How much could we get for it? Now, when it comes to board games, it can be a bit of a difficult question to answer. 
So I've, I've been having to impress upon him that the game's not actually worth what we originally paid for it. It's only worth what people are now willing to pay for it. Sometimes that's not a whole lot. Uh, one game I recently tried selling, I was going to put up on, on uh, Facebook for like 25 bucks, half of what I paid for it, which is, I think is a fair rate. That was what I was going to do until I had a cheeky look on eBay and discovered that, that this game, a new sealed copy of this game goes for over $500 Australian after shipping. Felt like I was on an episode of Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Uh, in the end, I managed to sell it for, for more than twice what I paid for it, which I was very happy with. Now, before you go investing in board games, it's worth saying that um, I think this is the only time I've actually ever made money selling any of my games, so don't get too excited. What's it worth? Well, whatever people are willing to pay for it. As we come to this passage in Mark's Gospel this morning, it's a short little stop on the way as Jesus' Jesus's death rapidly approaches. This story poses a bit of a similar question. What's Jesus worth? What's Jesus worth? That's kind of the question at the very heart of our passage, and as we'll quickly become clear as we work our way through, there is a real variety of different valuations going on here. We've got the Jewish leaders, we've got some who were present, which is presumably some of the disciples. We've got one disciple in particular, Judas, who Mark kind of singles out. And then at the center of it all is this unnamed woman who interrupts the evening meal and causes quite the commotion. Four different responses driven by vastly different answers to this question, what's Jesus worth? The way that Mark has kind of put this account together, it's clear that he's really trying to draw attention to the contrast between these different groups. And as he does, it really forces us to ask ourselves this question, what is Jesus worth to me? I wonder, as we work through this passage together, which of these four responses is going to be closest to yours? We're going to come back to that question in a bit First, let's take a look at how this story unfolds. Make sure you've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be working closely with the text so you can follow along. And the first group in our sights are those who we meet in the very first verse. Take a look. Mark describes them to us as the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These were like the religious leaders of Israel, the head honchos, the guys who ran the show. And all throughout the gospel, if you've read Mark's gospel, you know this, from the second chapter all the way through until this one, Jesus butts heads, clashes with the Jewish leaders. Over and over and over again it happens, doesn't it? When he claims to forgive sins, when he constantly seems to be healing people on the Sabbath, where he refuses to follow their food and their purity laws, just again and again, there's clash after clash, and this clashing kind of reaches a climax, just a couple chapters before the one we're in this morning, when Jesus rolls into the temple and then just starts flipping over tables, 
if you remember when we looked at that passage. And then after he's, he's, he's made this massive mess, he accuses the leadership of Israel of turning God's temple into a den of robbers, he says. It's like, yep, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. Uh, in the immediate aftermath to, to the temple commotion, Mark offers us this comment. He says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. I want you to notice how similar those words are to the way our chapter today begins. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. These were Jesus' enemies, in other words. And to them, Jesus had become a popular nuisance, a rising rival who was threatening their influence and control and their power over the people. And so for the Jewish leaders, Jesus Jesus was worth far more to them dead, gone, removed, out of the picture. And significantly, it would be this very valuation right here that we read about in verse 1, that in two days' time, it would lead to Jesus' arrest, to his false conviction, and then to his execution. And as readers, we come to this chapter, Mark is is setting this up for us. Jesus' end is almost here. When you think about it, there are many people in our world today who share a similar valuation to the Jewish leaders. I'm sure we all know people who are like that, who consider Jesus to be a nuisance, uncomfortable, perhaps even downright dangerous, right? Because Jesus challenges their authority, he challenges their freedom, he challenges their power to live their life however they want. And so, he's either ignored, removed, gone, out of the picture, or sometimes what you'll see people do is is they kind of distort him into something that's that's less challenging, less offensive, less imposing on their lives, kind of like Jesus was just a wise teacher, he was just a good guy. I wonder if that could be at all similar to how you value Jesus at the moment. After this opening verse that kind of sets the scene, turns the temperature up, the rest of this story revolves around the act of this unnamed woman. Jesus and his disciples are back in a place called Bethany. Bethany was this small little town just outside Jerusalem, and in these final days, the kind of last week of Jesus' life, Bethany was a bit of a home base where he would sleep at night before heading back into Jerusalem the next day. That's kind of how it was working. And so on one of these evenings in Bethany, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples are sharing a meal, and then suddenly a woman comes in. She takes out an alabaster jar, she breaks it, and then she begins pouring thick oil over Jesus' head. I mean, that sounds super weird to modern ears, doesn't it? Super weird. Sounds like it it should be the messy end to a muck-up day prank, right? Like, it really does. I mean, as, as Deb was reading it for us, I wonder whether some of you may have been sitting there going, wow, I wonder how long that would have taken to shampoo out of your hair. I wasn't thinking that, obviously, but some of you might have been. 
But like, what a weird thing to do. <laughs> like, totally weird. Weird for us now, but not for them back then. You see, throughout Israel's history, there were a number of reasons why you might do this to someone. Oil was connected to healing of the sick, especially in conjunction with prayer. So to anoint someone with oil was to implore God's healing and protection over a person. In the Old Testament, it was also a mark of holiness. It was a way of kind of setting someone apart for a special role. And so prophets would anoint kings and priests with oil as a form of of kind of like sacred commissioning, setting them apart in authority. And then finally, thirdly, in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was, it was very common to anoint someone with oil when they arrived to your home. So it was a gesture of hospitality, um, very similar to the washing of someone's feet. Oiling their hair with fragrant perfume was a way of kind of freshening them up from a long and dusty journey. So in Mark 14, I think we are to assume that that this woman's act was a gesture of hospitality, a way of welcoming Jesus into her house. And we know that this is her house. She's not just some random woman. This is her house because in John's account of this same night, he reveals to us that this woman is, is none other than Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene, but Mary, the sister of Martha, the one who sat at Jesus' feet. Mary, the sister of the recently resurrected Lazarus. All of this is to say that, that what Mary does here with the oil, it would have not been unusual. She was being a good host. So just picture the scene with me for a moment. Jesus and his followers are gathered there around the table Mary enters the room quietly, maybe doesn't even say a word, makes her way around the table to where Jesus is reclining, enjoying his meal. She takes out the jar, she breaks it and begins to pour it onto his hair. Maybe the room barely even registers that this is happening until suddenly the thick aroma of this oil begins moving through the room. People who are deep in conversation, mouthfuls of food, they catch the scent in the air. Suddenly they stop. They stop, the room falls quiet, and everyone in that room is now looking at Mary standing over Jesus. Is that nard? Did she just dip a whole jar of nard onto Jesus? Nard? Where on earth did she get a thing like that? Now, for those who might need a brush up on your ancient perfumes, nard was uh, an aromatic oil. You can still get it to this day. And it was imported all the way from India. It's the only place you could get it, which meant that it took a whole lot of effort to get your hands on that stuff. Amazon's free delivery was still a few years off. But you know, even today, it doesn't seem that cheap, right? Even on Amazon, three bucks a milliliter. Wow. But then, This stuff back then was so rare, it was so sought after, that it was more like 150 bucks a mil. And so that amount of nard up on the screen, Amazon selling, 
Back then, that would have cost like four and a half thousand dollars. But Mary doesn't pour that amount of nard onto Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us how much she does. John does, and in John's gospel, he tells us that it was half a liter, 500 mils of nard is what she tips onto Jesus. That's 75 grand. $75,000 running down Jesus' head through his hair onto his shoulders, ending up on the floor. 75 grand in the space of 60 seconds. There it is. It's gone. Now, I've never smelt nard before. Uh, apparently, the scent is, is a distinctly wooded, earthy musk. And as that aroma wafted around the room, everyone would have stopped fallen silent from the shock. And then the whispering would have started up. Did she just do what it smells like she did? Did she just pour a year's wages out on top of Jesus' head? I mean, Mary must be out of her mind. We are in verses 4 and 5. Mark tells us uh, that there were some who were present who were bold enough to speak up. They whispered amongst themselves, then some of them spoke up, and it's outrage. It's probably a good way to describe their reaction, outrage. Why this waste of perfume? They ask indignantly. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening in their hearts, of course. We can only speculate. But I imagine some of that reaction is coming from resentment. It's like, where did she get this obscenely expensive perfume from in the first place? And why were we not made aware of it? How dare she hold on to that herself and not share it for the ministry? How dare she? If we'd have known, we'd have put it to much better use. I also imagine that there might have been some jealousy, you know? I mean, come on, these are the same disciples who, at every turn, seem to be bickering about the pecking order, you know? who's the greatest follower of Jesus. They seem very concerned with that. And so these chaps, to them, it, it may have seemed that Mary's act was, was, was like she was making a power play of some kind, trying to steal Jesus' favor, trying to elevate herself in the pecking order, which is not on. You know, she wasn't even one of the 12 disciples. How dare she? So they attack her. Mark says that they rebuked her harshly. Put yourself in Mary's shoes, right? That must have been pretty intimidating in your own home. To be spoken like that by Jesus' closest followers and, and for it all to unfold in front of Jesus who's right there. Full on. And what do you think it reveals about their valuation of him? I mean, they straight accuse Mary of wasting the perfume, don't they? Wasting it. So at the very least, at the very least, you've got to say that, that they're implying Jesus is not worth the nard. He's not worth it. She's wasted it on him. And the word that they, Mark uses, wasted, it's a strong word to use. It, it can also mean ruined. So they're basically saying she has ruined this nard by pouring it onto Jesus. What a thing for them to be implying. I don't think they quite get just how offensive they are being in that moment. 
Before we toss them under the bus, though, I think we can at least concede that these followers valued Jesus' teaching, right? We get that from, from the fact that they say we could have given the money to the poor. Of course, love of neighbor, care of the poor. I mean, these were like signature teachings of Jesus, right? So they're valuing the teaching, it seems, but they're doing it while devaluing the teacher. They cherish, it's like they cherish the saving, but they've forgotten the saviour. I want to ask us, how often are we at risk of falling into that same trap, that same temptation? Because we love being busy, don't we? Or maybe we don't love it, but we are busy. We love ticking boxes, kicking goals. We love serving, being of assistance, sharing, saving, whatever that might look like, being good Christian-looking people. But we can do all of that (laughs) despite the fact that our relationship with Jesus is lacking. Maybe it's weakening. Maybe it's not going anywhere. So from outward appearances, you know, we might be making the right noises, going through the right motions, but underneath it all tells a different kind of story. Like we've somehow stopped relating with God as God. We're engaged with the saving, but we're kind of disconnected from the Savior. I wonder if that sounds familiar for you at all. You know, when that happens, you know what happens. All of that neighbor love that we might be engaging in, when it's not flowing from a deep and abiding, and abiding love of our Savior, when it's become disconnected from our love of God, then it actually, all those acts of love become acts of self-love, right? The pats on the back, the recognition, maintaining our reputation, the self-assurance that we comfort ourselves with because look at all these things that I'm doing. I mean, when you, when you look at how they respond that night, I'm pretty confident that the disciples were totally expecting Jesus to vindicate their indignation, that they were right to rebuke this wasteful woman. I'm sure that's what they were waiting for him to do. Instead, what does Jesus do? He ends up rebuking them doesn't he? Now, in John's account of this night, he identifies Judas as one of those who joins in rebuking Mary. Mark doesn't single Judas out until the end of this little story, verses 10 and 11. Read it along with me. Mark writes, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to portray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Again, Mark's account is kind of light on the specifics, but we know from Matthew's gospel, we know exactly how much Jesus was worth to Judas. 30 pieces of silver, Matthew tells us. That was the price that they paid to Judas. It's about 600 bucks in today's money. 600 bucks. Not a lot, in other words, for what he was about to do. But, you know, to someone who's consumed by greed, it's it's enough for him to do the unthinkable. You know, when I think of Judas, I think of uh, the parable of the sower. 
From back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells this story of seed that is sown, and the seed kind of represents the gospel going out, and it goes out to, to four different types of soil, which represent kind of people's response to hearing the gospel. And, you know, the Jewish leaders, they're textbook stony path, right? Textbook stony path. There's no penetration of the gospel, and so there's no growth at all. But Judas, I mean, he is a classic example of, of the weedy soil, I reckon. I mean, this, this is one of the guys who was 12 disciples, right? He's one of the 12 disciples. Presumably at some stage, he was excited to be there. He was inspired by Jesus, But in the weedy soil, if you're familiar with the parable, the thorns grow up alongside the crop, don't they? Until, as Jesus explains, until the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word. I mean, that has to be what ended up happening to Judas, right? Instead of remaining devoted to his saviour, the the weight of other worries start to creep in, bit by bit. doesn't happen all at once, but the desire for other things, in Judas's case, for wealth, just begins to weigh heavier and heavier upon his heart until eventually he gave in and gave up, and gave up Jesus. Now, none of us, I don't think, are shaping up to betray Jesus in the dramatic fashion that Judas does, but surely you can identify with this danger, can't you? Of weeds kind of growing up alongside the crops and choking out our love for God, distracting us from following Him. I mean, we know that's a thing, surely. We know that's a thing. We can feel the pull of our world against our hearts, the worries and the weight And we're constantly bombarded with these promises from our world, aren't we? Promise after promise, paths that are promised to lead us to success and to comfort, to to greater pleasures and greater wealth, these shiny, glittery, plastic promises that are designed to catch our eye and that threaten to, to, to tear our attention away from God. I know that some of us are going to be here this morning in the throes of that struggle right now. In fact, maybe that's the whole reason God brought you in here this morning, to hear this wake-up call from the example of Judas. Beware. Beware those weeds threatening to choke out your faith. Cut them down. Don't leave them there. Ask for help. Clear the soil. Let nothing hinder your devotion to the Lord. What's Jesus worth to you? I pray it is more than 30 pieces of silver. So there's, um, there's three pretty dodgy valuations to begin with. It's painted a pretty sobering picture, hasn't it? But that's okay, because we've saved the best for last. And it's Mary, Mark's unnamed woman, who is standing with her saviour at the centre of this story. And... I love it. Just like the time when Jesus calms the storm with just a word, he does the same thing here. As the commotion breaks out, you can imagine him standing up and leave her alone, is what he says in verse 6. Leave her alone. You imagine everything would have gone quiet. 
she has done a beautiful thing to me, he tells them. A beautiful thing. Isn't that magnificent? Isn't that magnificent? I mean, can you think of any higher praise from the creator of our universe than to be told that you've done a beautiful thing for him? Amazing. And look, there really are so many beautiful things about what Mary has done here. Firstly, obviously, there's the cost. The disciples were right about one thing, right? This anointing with nard was an absolutely extravagant gesture. And especially for Mary, like we know that she wasn't from a wealthy family. We know that because her father is referred to in this passage as Simon the leper. He was known by his disease, which meant he was probably a beggar by profession until he met the Lord Jesus. And so just the fact that Mary even owned such a precious object, it meant that it most likely would have been inherited, kind of passed down from generation to generation. And so beyond the market value, which was astronomical, it obviously held enough sentimental value you know, for her not to have sold it yet, despite her father's leprosy. And yet the day that Jesus enters her house, right, she wastes no time breaking this thing open, this long cherished jar, and emptying it entirely onto his head. And why does she do it? Because to Mary, Jesus is worth it, right? He's worth the nard. How beautiful is that? He is worth the nard. And Mark, I think, is really trying to emphasize the comparison here because compared to the religious elites at the start, even compared to Jesus' hand-picked disciples who've called her out on it, it's this woman. Mark doesn't even name her. She's the one who gets it. She puts everyone else to shame because she's the only one who understands the simple, most profoundly important truth about following Jesus. It costs everything costs everything. It involves complete surrender, the giving over of our whole selves. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, have you done that yet? Because the truth is you can't be his disciple until you do. I've always appreciated the way Sam Albury describes what it means to follow Jesus. It's a great description. He says this, The gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle, any major adjustments to their aspirations, it is likely they've not really started following Jesus at all. Mary gets that following Jesus is all or nothing. I mean, you can see it in the way that she breaks that jar open never to be used again. And then she tips the whole thing out. It's not like, oh, well, here's 10% of my nard, Jesus. Thank you for letting me keep the rest for something more important. That's not how it works. It's everything. And she gets it. There's no more important moment than this one right here. This is it. So she breaks the jar. She empties it all out, every last drop. And why does she do it? Because her saviour is worth it. In the presence of her precious Messiah, everything else is devalued. That's what's happening in her heart. The timing, 
I think is the second beautiful thing about this gesture. Jesus receives it from her and then he reinterprets it for the whole room. And in doing so, he he actually heightens the significance of what she's just done. He actually makes it more beautiful, if that were possible. Second half of verse 8, take a quick look. What does Jesus say? She poured perfume on my body beforehand to to prepare for my burial. Jesus folds this extravagant act into his journey to the cross. He likens what she's just done to what what Joseph of Arimathea and others will do after taking his body down from the cross, where they will wrap it with perfume and spices to prepare it for the term. She started that process already, Jesus says. He weaves Mary's act of devotion into the story of his coming death. The final beautiful thing is the gift that she's given him. I love this. The fragrant aroma that she covers him with that night, it would have stayed with him over the coming days, which means he would have filled that upper room with its earthy musk as they shared the final Passover meal together. It would have lingered there in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was arrested. It may have even raised an eyebrow in the Sanhedrin or with Pilate as he was put on trial. And it would have been there with him even as he hung on the cross. This beautiful memory in the anguish of his final moments. She has done a beautiful thing to me, Jesus says. Amen to that. Friends, now is the time to ask ourselves, what is Jesus worth to you? Because the answer should be everything, shouldn't it? Because following Jesus is as costly as it gets. It demands a whole life for a whole lifetime, and it's not a price that's, that's measured in any earthly currency, but in the currency of our hearts. When it comes to Jesus, where is yours at? And Mary's extravagant act of devotion, it's the reminder that that though following Jesus costs us everything, it is worth it. He is worth it. And she also reminds us that when it comes to our God, there's no such thing as wasted worship. It's not possible. There's no such thing as over-adoring Him, over-honoring Him, over-glorifying Him. He never tires of hearing your praises. And when we give to Him what we value most, it is always gladly received. He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. He is our Redeemer. And He is worth our everything always. Let's pray to Him now as we close. Father God, thank you for the sweetness of your word this morning that has reminded us just how much you are worth. We thank you for the example of your daughter Mary and her boldness in what she does despite the criticism and the indignation. We thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus, who we can cling to, come to, pray to and cherish deep in our hearts. Father, we pray for everyone here this morning who are going to be at different places 
when it comes to the evaluation of your son, we pray, Lord, that you might gather us in, in awe of you, in love of you, to love and to cherish you in all that we do, because you are worth it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing in response now. What a beautiful name. Let's stand and sing.